Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor what i'm most worried about right now is figuring out how i can live openly and honestly i am finally free to be me i have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious what does life look like after church after religion after god that's you know that that's it in a nutshell this is the life after god podcast a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell. I'm your host, and this is episode 37. I've been having a great time launching the X-Files segment of the show. We now have three conversations with um, really remarkable individuals in our X-Files repertoire, Tim Richardson, Marsha Wickham, and then last week, Nate Cartel. Uh, all three of these individuals I've met and spoken with online. We've never met in person, but I feel like I know them just because of the community that has formed around Life After God, uh, both on Facebook and over email and phone conversations. And their vulnerability and their honesty and, and just transparency and, and, and love that comes through in their stories is just so inspiring. So if you haven't had a chance to check out the three X-Files episodes that we have up so far, uh, definitely do that. What we're trying to do with X-Files is tell uh, first-person stories of deconversion or of transformation of religious viewpoints and how that affected people's lives. These are people that, you, unless you're personal friends with them, you've never heard of them, they're not. Uh, most of them have not written books. They aren't uh, on the lecture circuit. Um, they're just normal, everyday people who are living their lives, taking care of their children, taking care of their uh, families, going to work, uh, paying their bills, and working on healing from a variety of, of harms that have been done, and also working on developing a, a robust life after God. For many of us who built our identities and our our passion and our worldview and our work ethic and everything around the notion of God and what God was calling us to do, it takes a little time to figure out how to live post that worldview. And what you hear from Tim Richardson in particular in the first X-Files episode and what you'll hear from many others is that this is not something we chose. This is not something that we set out to um, as an intellectual pursuit necessarily to say, I wonder if I could undermine my faith. I wonder if I could blow up my friend group. I wonder if I could really damage my marriage. I wonder if I could um, you know, offend most of the people in my life and cause myself great trials and hard- hardships. You know, This is something that happened to us. We just kept progressing along in our lives and things started to not make sense and we held these things at bay. Uh, for as long as possible. 
And then uh, somewhere along the line, and it's different for every person, the last Jenga block was pulled out and the tower uh, kind of collapsed. And as freeing as that can be, it's also disorienting. And these stories are designed to really put a face and a personality and a heart around these concepts. So I hope you'll check them out. Um, we'll have another one coming up, I believe, this Friday, barring some uh, disruption in my schedule, which is also uh, pretty common. So don't hold me to that. But we have uh, have another X-Files in the can ready to share with you and some other exciting interviews uh, on the way. But today, my guest on Life After God is Cass Midgley, who has become a, a dear friend. And he is actually someone I have met in person. He uh, came down to Atlanta for the Life After God launch party in November of 2015. We had corresponded uh, a bunch before that. I was on his podcast, Everyone's Agnostic, uh, back in February of 2015, which for him was episode 37. He's pressing towards episode 100. I think he's on episode 97 right now. So that was 60 episodes ago. Um, he had uh, he had me on the show. This was right after I had uh, concluded my year without God and had said publicly that I, I was an atheist and that I was going to be working on you know figuring out what to do next. And uh, Bob, his co-host, uh, and and Cass had me on the show. It was one of my favorite podcast experiences, um, and maybe still is my my one of my favorite conversations that I've ever had with a podcaster because Cass and I have so much in common. Uh, we're similar age. We have children. We've both been clergy, uh, pastors within uh, Christian denominations. We both went through a deconversion process that uh, is, is similar in many ways. We, have, we share similar interests. Our temperaments are somewhat similar. So, so he's a great guy to sit down and chat with. And we had the opportunity to have a couple beers together in Atlanta. We've stayed in touch ever since. I'm a big fan of his podcast, Everyone's Agnostic. And I encourage all of you to go out and uh, download his, uh, subscribe to his show. Uh, you can subscribe to it on iTunes, on Spreaker, or on Stitcher. And uh, it's just great. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a great host. He asks good questions. He's um, engaging and inquisitive. And he has really interesting people on the show, not just the, the usual suspects, but again, like what we're trying to do here, people that you've never heard of, that have really interesting stories. And, you know, people tune into Everyone's Agnostic because they want to hear from Cass and Bob, regardless of who their guest is. And if they have a famous guest, you know, I'm sure their numbers go up like everybody else. But the faithful Agno Everyone's Agnostic listeners are, are there because they love Cass and Bob. So go check it out. Everyone's Agnostic. You can just subscribe to it on iTunes. It'll pop up in your news feed uh, every time he puts a new episode up. And I hope you become uh, supporters of their show as well. They have a Patreon page where you can throw them a dollar or two or 20 or 100 or whatever you have to support the work that they're doing. Uh, a little bit about Cass. Uh, he was a devout Christian uh, for 40 years of his life, served in Christian ministry for nearly 20 years. He's a musician and has uh, been uh, involved in ministry, music ministry and youth ministry. His deconversion, de like so many, was really painful and lonely. And so once he recovered from that and kind of the smoke cleared from, from that process, he determined uh, to help others navigate that 
uh, same journey. And so he started the podcast, Everyone's Agnostic. He earned a Master's of Theological Studies from Vanderbilt Divinity School in 2013 as an atheist, uh, still infatuated with the human need for gods and supernatural narratives. He's now a humanist chaplain and serves as a staff advisor to the Secular Student Alliance on the Vanderbilt campus in Nashville, Tennessee. So uh, I hope you enjoy our conversation. It was certainly a treat for me. It's a little different than some of my other conversations in that we do know each other, and it's a bit of a rambling uh, conversation. So I hope, I hope you enjoy it. Please let me know what you think by writing to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. And as always, uh, if you want to learn more about Life After God, you can visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. Uh, follow us on Facebook. We have some fantastic activity happening on Facebook, thanks to Brian. Uh, you can find us at facebook.com slash ourlifeaftergod. We're also on Twitter at ourlifeaftergod. So find us online, get involved, uh, comment, share your story. We'd love to hear from you. And now, my conversation with Cass. Hey, Cass. Welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to uh, good to talk to you formally like this. We tend to chat somewhat more frequently than this, but it's been since February of last year since I was on your show. Yeah, what, what was that? Episode um, 32. That's a while ago. You're almost 200. Yeah, we, we just we just put out 96. So You yeah. were a baby podcaster. I mean, I'm almost you, you, that was the episode for you, which is almost equivalent to where I'm at. I'm I think I'm at 37. And you, you took off running, man. I mean, like your show reached a level of professionalism on day one, whereas <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. I mean, we had talked and I had um, told my uh, listeners that I was stopping after 100 because I needed the time to write the book. And that was about maybe 10 episodes ago that I was I had made that decision turned out to be premature because I, I just love doing it. Right. You know, the other thing was, is if I write a book that nobody reads and yet, you know, I've got thousands of listeners on the podcast each week. So <laughs> I just thought, what, what am I doing? I'm shooting myself in the foot. Well, I've really dropped off my blogging because of the podcast, but I really love this. I was thinking I really love this medium more, sometimes more than writing. Oh, absolutely. I do too. I mean, it's, it's, it just comes so much easier. I was just telling Bob how how laborious writing is, and that's fine. That should be, and it's hard work, and I'm lazy. <laughs> but uh, but just talking to friends, like uh, we most of the time, the conversations we have on our podcast, I would be having. I mean, it is the intentionality of doing it. That's what makes it happen. But I so enjoy it that I would, you know, I, I just see myself in a coffee shop with friends and networking with people all over the world that are on this journey, which brings me to what I want to say before we get too far into it. Thank you for what you do. I love what you do and what we do is very similar. And I think there's, um, we know the Pew Research numbers and things like that, but I think more than anything, we have a finger on the pulse of this of this movement. When I say movement, I mean the the people that are leaving their childhood faith. That's right. That seems to be snowballing. And so one of the other reasons, I keep listing reasons why I decided to keep doing the show, but the other one is our numbers are going up. Hmm. That's great. But I do think that on the whole, in the demographic, in the population, I think we're seeing a growing swell of people, of numbers of people who are on this journey. And it's probably worth inserting here that within the, the bigger atheist movement, what you and I do, Ryan, is very unique uh, in that people who have not 
really been a devout Christian in this case or whatever religion, really devout. Like it was their, you know, like the Bible says, love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And we did that. And somebody who didn't do that and the departure or the uh, leaving of their faith, if you will, was a minor bump in the road of their life. Whereas for some of us, the bottom fell out. And that's a big difference. So when we're talking to people, we're, we're talking to a unique segment of the society that this was significant. If you haven't been through this, then this really is going to not make any sense to you. And that's kind of why I have Bob as my co-host is because he is that guy. He's like, he doesn't understand at all the trauma of, of what we've been through. But anyway, long story short, thank you for what you're doing. And I love the work that we're co-laboring on. Thank you. And uh, that's the, you know, aside from the fact that we're friends and I've, I like to have my friends on the show and, one of the joys of this work, as you know, is introducing people you know to other people who don't know them. So mm-hmm. just to be clear, uh, Cass has a podcast called Everyone's Agnostic. His co-host is Bob, and they're nearing 100 episodes. And uh, really one of the most, I think, uh, interesting podcasts out there, Cass, because you are so thoughtful in your approach. And I, one of the things that I, I keep thinking, and I know this comes from my pastoral background, and I'm, I'm sure it does for you too, and we'll, we'll get into your background in just a minute, but I, I feel like when I was religious and when I was a pastor, there were, uh, you know, the way they say the, the world can be divided into two kinds of people, mm-hmm. uh, those that divide the world into two kinds of people <laughs> and, and those that don't. <laughs> I have never heard that. That's great. Yeah. So anyway, I'm about to divide the world into two kinds of people. So, the, the, you know, there are two there are two kinds of Christians, those that were focused mostly on the dogma and making sure that it was right and everybody followed it. Mm-hmm. And then there were those that focused more on the people. Loosely speaking, these are two big kind of categories. Mm-hmm. And, and I was always more the latter. Like I was more interested yep. in people's experience of the world, their their pain, their joy. Uh, their life experiences, the, the ups and downs of, of their life, getting married, having kids, mm-hmm. uh, burying a loved one, you know, that kind of thing. That was for me pastoral. Yeah. And the ones that were focused mostly on the dogma for me struck me as very sort of uh, emotionally closed down and not very aware of the world outside of their head. And And so when I come to the atheist community, I find I'm getting around to why I think what you and I are doing is actually unique, like you said. Um, you know, because so much of the atheist discourse is really about who's right and how can we prove that I'm righter than you. And that reminds me so much of the Christian folks I hung out with for so long. And I'm, I'm interested in being right. I mean, I, I want to be more right than I'm wrong, right? Like, or like Matt Dillahunty says, I want to, I want to believe as many true things and as few false things as possible. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also interested in the person and, and I'm really curious which is why I have Christians on my show, and I know you have Christians on your show and mm-hmm. people of other faiths. Like, tell me why you still hold on to this. Tell me what it is about it, because I'm just genuinely curious about your story and what makes it work for you when it doesn't work for so many other people. Yeah. Okay. So this is a big deal, and I think – I can't remember the phrase, and I'm not going to phrase it right because when it's phrased right, it flows really well. But that is people don't see the world as it is. They see the world as they are. That's right. Yeah. If you're wearing an atheist hat or a Christian hat or 
a Minnesota Vikings hat. I mean, whatever it, your personality is, what you're going to bring to that ism, you know, to that ideology, that worldview. And so in, in some ways, I know nerd is a is actually a kind of a good term today because they rule the world and they're really cool and they're fascinating and they're interesting. And they have a lot of money. And they have money. But when you and I were in high school, like Revenge of the Nerds was out, like nerd was a, a derogatory thing. But in the, I'm, where I'm going with this is that somebody is a nerd is, is because they're kind of a bookworm around that subject or whatever. And that's kind of – I'm kind of contrasting the nerd versus the, the bohemian. Right. Artist versus the mathematician or something, you know, to where somebody is wanting to dot their I's and cross their T's and – and really follow the letter of the law. So that's that's the mathematician nerd or over whatever in in this metaphor. Whereas the bohemian or somebody who's really looking at it as art. So the cool thing about art is that it's not really subject to that kind of analysis, you know. The opening scene of uh Dead Poet Society is Robin Williams has them tear out that opening page of the book because it was trying to do a an X and Y graph of how to analyze poetry and and i think when we come to anything and we have that kind of um construct or the scaffolding by which we're going to you know frame this as opposed to no this is an expression this is a human expression so i guess what i'm saying is the christians that i totally appreciate and the atheists that i totally appreciate seem to have a whole lot more leeway and uh, accommodation for that which means to be human or an expression or it's messy and and actually an appreciation for the messiness or at least a way to accommodate it grace versus law or something you know so right i do want to come and i did like you're saying look and i think we can insert this here is that one of the things that we found after the smoke cleared of our deconstruction was uh, Cass is the same Cass that he was before. Ryan's the same Ryan. Now, the, yep. a lot of things have changed, but in in many ways, nothing has changed. And so here we find ourselves. The smoke is cleared, and all those things that led us to Christianity and made us really what we were then, uh, the DNA is still here. Uh, and and so yeah, I do like to approach my guests. I like to approach my life. I like to approach my children with this very human lens. And I, like I said, the more artistic appreciation of how we're showing up, imperfect, perfect, beautiful, ugly. It is what it is. You know, my 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 catchphrase is be a yes sayer to what is. Right. And so whenever you are confronted with whatever, imperfection or ugly, I think it's the the mature thing to do, ideally, is to figure out a way to say yes to it as opposed to throw a tantrum and say, no, I can't get, you know. Right, right, right. And roll with life as it comes. So that's a long way around of saying, and I don't even know if I answered your question, within any movement, you're going to have people that seem to have a need to be right, that kind of... Uh, supersedes their allegiance to their neighbor. Yeah, I, I heard someone call them Vulcan atheists one time. You could, we could refer to Vulcan Christians, you know. They're, yeah. Right? They're like just totally like logic rules and there's like, you remember Spock would kind of cock his head to the side and look at Kirk like, Absolutely, yeah. What do you, ta- what do you mean feelings? Like I, I, you're not making any sense to me. Great metaphor. It is, yeah. I think, of, you know, Vulcan is a, is a really interesting way and we need logic. You know, I think the big correction for me coming out of Christianity was, oh, I can know some things that I was all squishy about before. Like, 
you know, science tells us some things pretty certainly, and um, we can be pretty confident about uh, quite a few things where I felt like my only way to stay a Christian was to be really squishy about those things. So I, mm-hmm. I, I have a deep appreciation for logic and, and understanding the world in that way. But but I, I guess I, I find if I had an indictment of this Vulcan approach, I, I feel like it would be a lack of curiosity. Mm-hmm. So as by way of by way of illustration, you know, this National Geographic article came out the other day uh, by Greg Bulliard and um, it was a pretty good article. And then he named some celebrity name, atheist names and said that they were had a tendency to be um, misogynist, which I thought was probably a bad choice of words. Um, but it was like two sentences sort of negative about the atheist movement and about four or five or six pages full of. Really good uh, article, you know, nothing too groundbreaking, but a good article about the rise of the nuns and the importance of secular community and so mm-hmm. forth. And my Twitter just blew up with people being really, really defensive about what a hit piece it was on atheists and that kind of thing. And whenever I encounter this type of reaction, it strikes me, well, it's, it's very defensive for one. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm more inclined, like if someone says to me, um, the atheist community is very... Uh, hostile towards, say, uh, people with short hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would be like, wow. And I have short hair. Uh, so I have two choices. I, I can get really worked up about the fact that I'm not like that and not all atheists with short hair are like that. Or I can ask a question. I could say, well, tell me about your experience with short-haired atheists. You know, like I, I'm curious what makes you say that. Oh, amen. You know what? Learn something about another person's experience where they might appreciate being heard and we might get somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. And I, I, it sounds – it reminds me of the kind of the Peter Boghossian and Anthony Magnabosco uh, street epistemology stuff where you just you, – you stick to the so- Socratic method and you respond with the question right. because it's the opposite. Instead of – and you just gave the example. Instead of you – yeah, the two reactions to the short hair comment would be, no, I'm not, you know, it's defensive. Or tell me more about why you think that. I mean, that's just, that's that's the difference in kindergarten and PhD. <laughs> right, right. And, and obviously, like the all lives matter kind of rebuttal. Yeah. Like, obviously, we understand that black people aren't saying that only black lives matter. I mean, this should go without saying. I've never encountered an expression of black lives matter that the person meant that no one else mattered, but black lives. you know what I mean? This is just, it's, it's a kind of contradiction to the statement that betrays sort of the simplistic thinking of the critic. Yeah. Like the critic is dumbing this statement down to its most ridiculous and then saying that doesn't make any sense. Like, like Brian, you know, who makes our social media memes, you know, he put up a meme on our page today that said, you know, uh, ending a relationship with God. I don't know if you saw it. No, I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's been really popular earlier, you know, throughout the day. And but I saw some comments on somebody. Somebody else shared it, and somebody else shared it, and then some comments on. I don't even know these people. But it was again. Someone said, "Well, that's not how I see it. How can you end a relationship with God when God doesn't even exist? I wouldn't ever say that I was ended a relationship with God. I mean, that doesn't make any logical sense because there is no God." And I was like, "Okay, but you know what we mean, right? Like, yeah, ugh." Right. It's just so it's so hard to communicate. I'm so done with that that attitude. I just I just roll my eyes and move on. I don't have time for it. In fact, 
I know that you and I are both fans of Mark Marin, and he was commenting the other day oh, yeah. about how his new website has no place for comments, and he was just reveling in that. <laughs> <laughs> and this yeah. goes back to what I'm saying about art and how art is not subject to judgment. So your 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 guy puts out a meme, and it's a thought, and you know, just like all art. It can be provocative. It could come from a dark place. It can come from a happy place or whatever. But it's up to the viewer, the observer, the witness to do with that what whatever it does to them. And they don't have to report back to the artist because I can tell you the artist doesn't give a fuck. You know, they just put it out there. Right. They just don't care. This is what yeah. they wanted to say. And I, and I guess that I love your phrase. Well, there's a couple of things that came up while you were talking. One, I've heard you say on the show before. And I thought you articulated it really well, but just briefly on the Black Lives Matter thing, when you say, well, you put it like this, I think you said, well, when people have experienced 500 years of privilege, uh, all of a sudden get challenged, then like the scales are have gone from being really tipped one way to they're leveling off. And the person who's had these years and decades and millennials of, of privilege they're just like, wait, you're, this is, a, you know, reverse racism and right, all right. kinds of stuff where they yeah. where they panic and they freak out when all we're doing is trying to bring things back into justice and alignment. And, yeah, so there's that panic. But you were the one that phrased that best to me one time I was driving down the road listening to some show you were doing. And I was like, oh, my God, that was the best way of putting that because I had never thought of it that way. And it, yet it is. Yeah, we all like you said that we see the world as it as we are. Yeah. So when we see the world as we are, it looks right to us. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, carry on with what you were going to say. Yeah, I also want to highlight you, your comment of um, sometimes it seems like people lack curiosity. And I think that's one. I like that. I like that phrasing. And I think I was um, taken the other day by a phrase or something like some truths are best communicated through through story, mm-hmm. through narrative. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so I think sometimes what's lacking all right, so I'm a huge Sam Harris fan, and I'm actually a huge fan of the book. What is it called? Truth or the one about lies? Maybe it was called Lies. Lying. Just it's lying. Called yeah. lying. So my wife and I read that book, and we loved it. In fact, it was the uh, it was the gateway drug for her because she was kind of skeptical of the uh, the Four Horsemen until she read that book, and she was like, "He's a great guy." <laughs> you know, anyway. Yeah. No, he really is a great guy. Yeah, I'm prefacing that we love Sam Harris. But And the only reason I'm even bringing this up is if somebody is really anal about lies. For example, like there's this YouTube out there, and I think it's college humor. But so it's a the setting is a wedding reception. And the you got the head table where the bride and groom are sitting, man of honor is sitting next to the groom, and it's it's his time to give a toast. But the right before he does Oh boy. Have you seen this? No, I could just see where this is going. Okay, right before he does, the the groom is introducing the man of honor. And so he's standing up and he just said something about how I just married the, the most beautiful woman in the world. And and by the way, here's my best man who's going to offer a toast. And everybody claps. And the best man stands up and he immediately goes into most beautiful woman in the world. What are you talking about? You know, like, and he begins to deconstruct how that cannot be possible. <laughs> you know, right. Because he and was, where is your evidence? Yeah, he was just he was a literalist. Uh, about this, you know, cliche or whatever that he that he thrown out, and everybody. So, I guess what I'm saying is there is this razor's edge, or maybe maybe broader than a razor's edge, but there is this middle ground that's kind of tough to navigate, the sweet spot, and that is, yes, I want to be um, be devoted to truth, like you were saying about 
Matt Dillahunty, like more truth, less lies or whatever. Yeah, I, I'm there. That's that's right. actually a moral, uh, you know, that's a great goal and everything. But there, I, you know, I just think this lack of curiosity and this lack of imagination and this lack of artistic appreciation for narrative and that, okay, yeah, we all, you know, even for our religious friends who still hold to, say, at least a metaphorical position, like Richard Rohr, for example. Yeah. You know, he's the one that says metaphor is the only possible language that that religion can use. And we know it's not literally the only possible language. However, what he's saying is any time that religion moves outside metaphor and becomes literal, bloodshed ensues. And uh, so we do have friends, Christian friends, religious friends, who don't acknowledge necessarily a literal six days, but it means something to them. And it doesn't make them an asshole. The creation so, narrative. Yeah. And so for what – I guess if somebody's not an asshole, I'm, I'm, I don't have any – I don't feel deputized by uh, the – you know, to, to fix that. By your atheism? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say by, by the non-god in the sky, you know, whatever. I mean – Right. By your deep insight and wisdom. Yeah, I'm just uh, nodding. I'm just uh, agreeing with this uh, analysis that we've just made of uh, the spectrum of what – not just within atheism, like we're saying, it's just kind of a human thing. That's right. And then when we bump into it, those of us with maybe the tools, like I was saying with with the Socratic method or something, or we have the maturity, we're comfortable enough in our own skin that we don't immediately resort to defensiveness or we just somehow somehow accommodate this this type of person, this type of human personality that is never going to go away. So I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's really good. And I, I think partly what we're talking about, too, is the capacity and I don't know how you learn this I think I learned it by studying literature and actually by honestly by studying theology mm -hmm. um, that there's because theology inhabits a symbolic realm almost to the exclusion of reality yeah right so that's the critique of, of religion and theology is that it it lives and dies in this symbolic realm mm -hmm. but one of the upsides of having spent my life studying theology and dealing in the symbolic realm is that I, I, I'm fairly literate in sort of a symbolic discourse, uh, symbolic world, so that when someone says, you know, I'm, I'm, today I'm marrying the most beautiful woman in the world, yeah. we know what the person means, yeah. right? Or when, you know, when someone says, this is the worst day ever, like I know what they mean. And, and so it's, it's not a matter of me saying, well, what evidence do you have? Have you kept track of every day? Um, this is what my 12-year-old says to me when she wants to be super sassy. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you know that it's the best thing ever? Have you had all the things so that you can compare them and know which one's the best? Like, okay, you know what I meant. <laughs> you may, I meant that I really, really like this, you know, or whatever it is. So, yeah, I, th I think that's just a kind of uh, – I think it's a capacity that we can learn. And, and to, I think it for me – it begins, again, with curiosity about the person I'm talking to or the experience I'm hearing described. Mm -hmm. I think listening to excellent podcasts is really a great way to cultivate this skill as well. Like I listen to uh, religiously, if, if you can, again, pardon the symbolic language. Sure. Uh, I listen to um, This American Life. I, I listen to Ted, Ted Radio Hour. I listen to um, Radio Lab. Yeah, Radiolab is the best. <laughs> so, and here you learn like how how we learn from one another's stories. And I think if we stop and listen and digest, 
what another person is really saying. I mean, we do it in our intimate relationships all the time. If mm-hmm. you care about a relationship with your child, you're going to hear past what they're actually saying mm-hmm. and try to understand what's in their heart, right? So yeah. if your teenager is screaming at you and telling you that you know, you're a terrible parent and that you're, you're the worst and you never let me do this and you never let me do that, it's hard to hear past that. I get, I get defensive and I'm like, that is not true. I just let you go last week to do something, you know, mm-hmm. but what's really going on in their heart. It takes a deeper kind of listening to, to do that. Yeah. You might say, well, there's a lot of absolutes in that last refrain. <laughs> Tell me about how that feels. You obviously feel like it's just completely overwhelming or something. Um, right, right. Yeah. So I guess to sum up, it's not surprising that you and I would go here in a natural conversation because I so relate to you and your version of atheism that um, I feel like maybe the, the this last discourse was me just taking a hot bath in f- being with a familiar friend and I kind of needed a break from – you know, of not only the, the the bigger atheist movement, but how some of those atheists view you and I. Right. And I hope that this wasn't just we turned around and and you know, and pointed out their Vulcanness, and, and now we feel superior. But but I do think it's valuable to your and my listeners to go. Oh my gosh, that's what I love about these guys is because they're not so harsh, and acknowledging an old Christian metaphor that we used to use, the body of Christ, yeah. and that is somebody's an elbow, somebody's an ear, somebody's a toe, and and the whole thing is useful and needed for progress. And so we can acknowledge that there is a place in the world for the Vulcans, and oh, there absolutely. is a place in the world for the Bohemians, and we just happen to be both of us be, to be bohemians or whatever. I don't right, know why I like Right. We happen to be like artists. Yeah, the artist version. Yeah, and I think that that is true. And again, it's it's easy to have a, a really chummy conversation with someone that agrees with you. Yeah. Um, but I do, you know, part of my entrance into atheist uh, dialogue a year, about two years ago almost now, was really a, a jump into the deep end of yeah. a return to rationality, really. Yeah. It was, it was um, you know, I had... And I've, I've, I've started to write about this for, for the book I'm working on, but I, I, I'm really thinking through my own philosophical evolution. And I was saying to a friend the other day, you know, my, my notion of epistemology, my, my understanding of truth uh, went something like when I was a fundamentalist, um, I had the truth yeah. with a capital T. Yeah. And then as I became more aware of the world, I, I felt like I had the truth with a little t or I had truths, plural, um, but then as I became more liberal and more postmodern in my philosophy, and I think I moved towards postmodern philosophy because it made room for my imaginary beliefs as possible, uh-huh. uh, I, I said, well, there is no truth, right? So that was kind of the, the way that I could allow for the ambiguity of my faith was to say, well, what do any of us know anyway, Yeah. right? Um, nobody can know for sure, so my version may as well may, may has just as much of a chance of being right as yours, and it's all this kind of uh, very non-specific, relative kind of a relativism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and but there were like sp- specific truths, like my truth and your truth, and that was where I wanted to engage with people. Tell me your story about your truth, like uh, you know, say your story of poverty, your experience of homelessness. Like tell me that. That's your truth. That I don't have that story. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so we can learn from each other. And then coming to the to atheism, I feel like I went 
I, I call it kind of a return to rationality where I said, okay, I don't, I'm not going to go all the way to saying like I did when I was a fundamentalist Christian that I have the truth with a capital T. But I would say we have some truths that we can know pretty well, but at the same time, you know, we're, we need to still be humble about our ability to, to apprehend all those truths, right? We're, we're still limited. We're still bound in our, in our limited thinking, our limited bodies, and we need each other to round out the picture of truth. It's, it's again, like the, the three blind men describing an elephant. Like, they can't one of them describe it. Uh, together, they're feeling different parts of the elephant and, and describing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess what comes to mind for me when you say that is part of what triggered was the timeline. And uh, so so like once somebody does finally say, I'm not a Christian or maybe lets the word atheist roll off their tongue, which was a big deal for me. But I'm about five years out from that moment, maybe less. But it, but I do know for at least and I've heard people say six months, but I think it was worse for me, maybe the first 18 months. I was angry, and I was kind of one of those bristly, prickly – I'm already a prickly personality to begin with. But but when I was – I was a – and I think it comes from my own personal embarrassment. I was embarrassed that I had believed this shit, and I was – you know, I was ashamed, and I was self-shaming. And so I projected that, you know, anger out on people who were still believers, and I – you know, I lost a lot of Christian friends and, you know, that that just didn't have, the, you know, just said, I don't have to listen to this shit or they wouldn't say shit. But, uh, you know, so right. so part of what came to mind, all I'm saying is, is that most of our timelines are at least, you know, there's a period where we're maybe pubescent, where our, we walk funny and our voice inflections funny and our bones ache. And we're we're in a giant transition and we're not really fun to be around. We're irritable. And uh, I was I was like that. And now I think part of what has leveled off for me is just, I don't know, maybe I'm 50, too. I mean, that also I mean, I'm 50 also Uh, that that makes it a little bit more. um, I don't know. I just feel like old, old silver haired people, they just don't give a damn anymore. I oh, man, that you really nailed something for me there, because I feel like even at work or with a group of friends or like anywhere I am, I just don't get as worked up right. about things as I used to do. I'm just like, uh, whatever. Like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go home and watch Game of Thrones. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm just, I'm just not that concerned about whether people like me. As I used to be so caught up in whether people That's... liked me. And it's really hard to sort through truth when you're concerned about what other people are going to think mm-hmm. yep. of your conclusion. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I feel you. So I think we do need a kind of a collective maturity, not just within the secular community, but when you look out wider at uh, the political landscape, you know, the the political discourse that we're sadly uh, immersed in at the moment, there's just an overwhelming lack of maturity. I think of, you know, when what case in point that jumps to mind is when Cruz and Trump were going at each other's wives and which one was ugly and which I mean, I'm just like, is this middle school? Yeah, we have like a was, collective middle school mindset in this country these days, it seems to me. been the most bizarre campaign I've ever seen, for sure. So and it's, and it's, it's not over. It could get much more vitriolic over the next uh, few months. In a way, it's just getting started because it's just been people within their own party taking shots at each other. Wait till they start yeah. doing across the aisle. Yeah. Or how they handle these conventions. I mean, uh, it's, it's going to be a mess. 
Well, let's, you know, you talked a minute ago about sort of your maturation process, but uh, this, this episode is all backwards. Usually I do it more linear. So let's, let's now that we're, you know, 30 some minutes into this, jump back and, and just tell us a little bit about your um, early religious memories and yeah. what, how that evolved for you. Yeah, and I, I, I'll try to do it quick because, you know, like I said, there's 50 years here. But, you know, uh, uh, born and raised in Oklahoma, small rural town, population 2,500, one stoplight town, uh, 50 people in my graduating class. Um, so my mom introduced me to God, and it was a Presbyterian God and fairly liberal, I guess, at first. Um, so it, it was actually not a, not a real dogmatic or, or weird version uh, of Christianity, and I kind of wish I'd stuck there, which I'll go back to. But as a child, all, I have clear memories of loving, and I, I go back to just hedonism. Like I think people, people like what they like, and when you like it, you reinforce it. And I loved what it felt like to love. I loved what it felt like to take out the trash from my mom. I loved what it felt like to – I read a book once uh, as a child, and it was about a guy who had adopted some cheetah pups that were abandoned, orphaned, and he raised them, and they were pets and stuff. And it just so warmed my heart. I just – I kind of a sucker for love and kindness and empathy and community. I just love it. I love it. You're I like love a it. prickly guy with a soft center. I abstract. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> you're like a prickly pear cactus like pear you're like prickly on the outside but so sweet on the inside i'm telling you i've got a big heart it just doesn't always come out and um but <laughs> so i love love and then you know when you equate god with love then i think little by little god uh eclipsed that devotion to love so the same high i used to get from emptying the trash from my mommy or something you know if i felt like i was obeying god then I'd get that same high because I was pleasing God. I was pleasing love. And I think that's one way that people can end up being like an asshole to people and still feel like they're being loving because that loyalty to love or that loyalty to humanity got hijacked to a loyalty to a God who happens to hate gays or whatever. And so you can still feel really loving and pat yourself on the back all the while being an asshole or just a, a, a mean person in the opposite of love. And so, but that's a whole nother right. commentary. The point being is that when God was introduced to me as love, I thought, well, of course I love love and I love God. So that's it. And I, I took off, I, I went through Presbyterian, um, it's kind of, it's not catechism, but it's similar. And I just blew my teachers away because I really cared and I studied it. And I was, I maybe, maybe was 13 or something. I just remember impressing my teachers <laughs> because I, I've always cared. And I think, you know, there was and is in me, and maybe that's what I'm saying is diminishing as I turn 50, but there was in me a desire to know. I've got to know. I've got to know, you know, I've got to know kind of the ontological questions. Right. What's the meaning of life? Why are we here? And so God filled all that in. I mean, it wasn't, yeah, just, it was just God was the meaning and it kind of pacified that hunger to know. Um, and so in, in some ways that hunger or that skeptical side of me was, was paralyzed or, you know, put to sleep mm -hmm. by this grand narrative that just, that made it all make sense. And I know that's sometimes when Christians feel like, I've got all the answers now, and that uh, that's a tremendously comforting feeling, especially in a world that is truly, in essence, chaotic and random, you know, and meaningless. Yeah. 
And so that that's a great comfort. Anyway, long story short, I bounced to the Baptist church because I became a drummer, and they needed a drummer, and they had more kids in their youth group. So I bounced over there. That's when the emphasis on the afterlife came in because Presbyterians didn't care about that. But this, this church really cared a lot about hell and saving people from hell. So that became my mission. Then that church split over the gifts, like speaking in tongues or the laying on of hands or whether God heals in the 20th century or not. So I went with the, the charismatic Pentecostals. And that, so it became a non-denom thing. And that was it for me. I mean, I just really took off in that realm. I was a musician. So I quickly got, you know, uh, accustomed to leading worship on guitar and piano. I'm primarily a drummer, but I was, I learned those other instruments. And then I moved to Nashville to play drums. I played drums for uh, some country bands that you probably never heard of. But for four years, I, I gave it a go as a professional musician here in Nashville. And I got involved at Belmont Church, which is like Don Fenta's a big deal in this town. It was a, a Church of Christ that sp- split off because of the gifts. Very charismatic. Michael W. Smith lead worship. Amy Grant would lead worship sometimes. Whoa. I played drums behind the worship teams on that band. I played drums for Graham Kendrick when he came from London to, to lead worship, and I was really big into all the praise and worship uh, movements. I just had a guest on the show yesterday from England, and I told her, I said, do you remember the band Delirious? And she was like, oh, my God, I love Delirious, you know. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, we were both deconverted by now. But, I mean, but back then, that kind of praise and worship, Matt Redman and some of that British um, praise and worship movement was very powerful for me. So music was a big deal. Moved back to Oklahoma, immediately got involved in church, became an associate minister slash youth pastor slash worship leader. Uh, did all that, did that for seven years. I was fired from that church from a little controversy that was so over, uh, an overreaction to a nothing. And actually, in that case, I feel fully justified in everything that I did. There's another time I got, I left the church where it was merely my fault. And we'll get to that. So uh, I started a 501c3 nonprofit where I, I, I did a youth house. I bought a house. I had a, literally a dead uncle uh, left me $75,000. I bought a house, converted it to this really fun house. Nobody lived there. It was just a youth house. And I started this outreach for the entire county because you know, my town's not very big, but all the surrounding towns would come. And it, I ran it for seven years. It was beautifully dynamic, powerful. Thousands of kids came through. We we just pack out this house every Wednesday night, and we had a great band. Everything was going well. So – once that other church fired me, everybody said, well, we, the name of this ministry was called High Impact. And they said, we want a high impact for adults. And I was like, no, I'm not starting an adult, adult church. And put it off for like six months until finally I was kind of wanting to go back to church somewhere. And I thought, well, I'm just going to start this church. So started a church. We met at a skate rink in, uh, in that little county. Oh, wow. That went for about three years. I was teaching high school at, uh, well, in this case, I was teaching middle school for a while and then high school. But either way, I was teaching at a Christian school. And all my life, I've been uh, kind of a porn user off and on. And especially as a Christian, it was very much a, a shameful thing. And I'd fight it, fight it, fight it, then fall, then repent, and ask forgiveness, and then go maybe a few months or so. And then I'd fall. And, you know, the whole cycle of, of sin management and, and self-shaming. Yes, so, yes. uh I had looked at porn on, on a computer, the, com- the computer uh, at the at the Christian school, and it was after hours, et cetera, et cetera. But it, nonetheless, I didn't cover my tracks, and somebody found it. And so I, I was fired from the school, and then I kind of went under like a disciplinary leave at this church that I was the founder of. And by then, I had a board of elders and all this stuff. And it was a, it was a powerful church and a lot of powerful people, and it was 
really a good a good thing when it was when it was, you know as good as it can be. Right. How many people did you have in that at that point? Uh, by the time I stepped down, and then it basically just it fragmented and and imploded after that. But at its peak, it, we probably had like 140 on a Sunday morning. Right. It was okay, you know. It, it was what it was. But when they asked me to step down, and I, I and uh, they set up a, a a counseling session for me as a porn addict or sex addict or something, and I actually enjoyed that guy. He was he was really interesting. He was very Christian and very charismatic. Like he'd pray in tongues while, you know, when the meeting would start, and then we'd we'd have sessions where we'd wait on the Holy Spirit to lead us into you know the next topic. So he was very charismatic, and and uh, but other than that, he was a great guy. <laughs> But anyway, I guess what I'm saying is I went through all this stuff, and at the end of the day, it was just like, I don't want to go back. I don't really want to pastor this church, and I don't think they want me back. It had come out that I didn't believe in inerrancy. It it had come out that I didn't believe in hell, and I was just on the brink of not believing in in, uh, substitutionary atonement, and that was kind of leaking out uh, amongst my closest friends, and it just gets around. I was also a well— well known to be a cusser from the from the pulpit. <laughs> oh wow, like a Mark Driscoll guy. Yeah, I would. Uh, don't compare me to Mark Driscoll. No, I'm just kidding. No. So I saw this opportunity to not go back as an opportunity to maybe explore some things that I'd never allowed myself to explore before. A uh, quick story. I, years prior to this, I was in a, a bookstore, a secular bookstore. And you know how in the religious section or the spiritual section, you, you might, you'd have Deepak Chopra, all of these kinds of things. And there was, there was that book called uh, Conversations with God. Yeah. You know, I, I opened it up and read several pages. I guess the thing that I'm wanting to highlight here is that here's a guy who had given himself permission to define God, if you will, or interpret God or experience God in a way that was outside the boundaries drawn by the scriptures. Meaning, this is God. He never changes the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, this guy was having a conversation with God, and he'd say, well, I thought you, uh, I thought you hated pork or something, you know, and, and his version of God said, oh, no, that's just such, such and such came up with that. That never came from me, you know. But it, at minimal, it was license. <laughs> it was license to think. Now, as soon as I say this, let's say a fundamentalist is listening to this testimony that I'm giving, he'd say, right there's where you did it. Right there's where you lost it. You know, because when you do give yourself permission to think outside the box, they are right. That's a slippery slope. Well, it was. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a lot of the accusations that come from conservative Christians that are concerned about, and I, I'm sure you heard lots of this in your year with that God. Uh, they're they're giving you warnings to like, well, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And sure enough, most of it did. <laughs> you know, they were right. But it doesn't prove that they were right in the sense that they uh, that their warnings were should have been heeded. They're actually I think what it reveals is they're aware <laughs> that, of how close they are and how fragile their house of cards is. And just the fact that we got out. And the, the, the awkwardness and more than awkwardness, that's an understatement. The, the dark cloud, the funk that would come over me and everybody else was like, where's Jill? Well, she's not a Christian anymore. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, that was just a, a horrifying right. thought. And so I know those people are, think those things about you and I now. So anyway, uh, that was what happened was is that's such, that's such a small town. 
And I really was kind of a celebrity in that county, not just because of Christianity, but because my father was wealthy and he was kind of a prominent citizen. He, he died when I was 17. But the Midgley name in that county is really well known. And so there's nothing that I can do or say that isn't just known by everybody in the county. And so this whole thing, uh, you know, kicked out of the church because you're a porn junkie and then your your beliefs, your apostate beliefs, you're a heretic. And I'm 39, and I'm thinking I can't get a job, I can't, I can't teach. Bad reputations to overcome in that county, and I just said I got to go. Right. So at age 39, I pack up my wife and four children. I think my oldest was 13, my youngest would have been eight, and uh, came out here back to Tennessee because we had such a great experience the first time we lived here, and. Uh, I don't know, timeline-wise, we came out originally to play drums in 89, moved back in 93, spent 12 years raising our kids in Oklahoma around all our families and doing those church activities that I just mentioned. And then in 2005, came back out here. Now, I was still a Christian. I just was out of the church. I was done with organized religion and, you know, yada, yada. Right. That, But that is when I started reading. Now, when I first came here, I wasn't ready to really do it. In fact, a friend of mine, we were at a uh, bookstore, secular bookstore, and he literally pointed to Hitchens book, God is not great. And I just shuddered with fear. Like, I can't read that. Wow. That's how fragile I still was and how much, how much I still loved God. Like God was my best friend. And here's a guy saying, God's not great. Well, fuck you. My God is great. And, you know, I mean, just defensive and, and uh, protective of my, of my best friend. And so it was a couple of years later maybe three, that I did venture to read it. And I got it on audio, and Hitch actually reads it on the audio. And I fell in love with Hitch. I mean, it just everything changed. That book was really, really pivotal for me right. because he took the moral high road. I couldn't believe that he took the moral high ground. Like, I thought we already owned the moral high ground as Christians. And here he was saying, it's immoral. Human sacrifice is immoral. Uh, scapegoating is immoral, you know? I mean, he just completely lambasted, not not by way of like, I, I want to live my own life, God, you know, or what, you know. The, the, Leave me alone. Don't tell me what to do. Yeah, like it's a rebellion against authority. No, he came after, right. he came after the scriptures and the character of God as this is immoral. This is corrupt. This is, <laughs> this is barbaric. Yes. And um, so yeah. anyway, that, that changed everything. Uh, now, I want to go back one step and say before I got so brave that I could read that book, I do remember the cotter pen. I was sitting at a table with a friend, actually a kid that I had discipled, but so many years had passed that we were kind of, he was still like eight years my junior, but we considered ourselves peers by then. But he just flippantly said, well, you know, Adam and Eve weren't real. And I knew that to be, I mean, like I'd heard people say that before, but that for some reason, my armor was down. And I let it get past my outer guard. And you know when Luke Skywalker shoots that laser down into the center of the Death Star? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And because I entertained it I, and I let it get past the outer guard, it hit the core of, of my Death Star and I completely imploded. And that literally <laughs> began everything. Everything came crumbling down after that. Wow. So at that point, you know, you read Hitch's book. You know, you get up the courage to see what the fuss is about, and you're already feeling disenfranchised, literally, from, from the church. 
and you're kind of a solo practitioner now out there as a spiritual but not religious kind of person. When, where did you cross the line where you finally were able to say to yourself, I think I'm an atheist? Yeah, it was a it was a two steps forward, one step back, really. I, I started going to the Unitarian Universalist Church. That's where I met Bob. Well, that's cool. He was he actually was speaking that day and he he gave a sermon called Build Your Own Theology. And I just I loved that. I loved that concept and I thought, you know, I at that point I still believed I was going to have to stand before God in judgment someday. And so it made sense to me that I would really have take stewardship over my theology. Like I thought the more I'm borrowing this from man, the more fallible it is. And so I'm going to build my own such that I'm I'm ready and proud, and maybe not proud, but to stand before God and say, "This is what I believe," and I said, "These are these are my chips." I mean, this is where I'm putting my chips. And so, yeah, so I I felt that that liberty. I led I led the music there for about six months, but that particular UU was not only like really really cer- cerebral, but they had some political shit going on within the board. And, pe- you know, asking people not to come back. And I just, you know, it smacked so, mm. you know, much like like old church politics yeah. that I just said, I'm sorry, I'm gone. But the other reason was that there really wasn't enough God. I still needed to hear the God word every now and then. And they just they were never going to say that. So a friend of mine, he said, you know, have you ever heard of unity? And I said, no. It's a hundred-year-old denomination. They believe Jesus is their master teacher, but he's not. He's no more the Son of God than you and I. And their main text is the Bible, but it's not literal. It's metaphorical. So I thought, well, this is perfect. So I spent three years at a Unity Church as as the song leader. Oh wow, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't realize that. They claim to not be theists. That's that's just lip service. They are complete theists. They they talk about God as a person. They pray. I mean, it it got to where I was not that theistic. So I outgrew that. In the meantime, I Bob talks me into getting a master's in theological studies from Vanderbilt Divinity and uh, as an atheist. I mean, actually, I should say as an agnostic. I probably wasn't maybe, you know, maybe. But actually, it was probably about midway through that that I was like, yeah, I'm an atheist. <laughs> All my professors were, well, besides being brilliant. None of them actually literally believed any of it. In fact, you may have heard of A.J. Levine. She's, yeah. she's a New Testament scholar. Amy Jill, yeah. Amy Jill Levine. And she's, you know, she's Jewish, and yet right. she, she's a New Testament scholar. Go figure. And she didn't believe any of it necessarily. And she's funny, too. Was she, she funny as clever. a teacher? She's very – she's funny, but I'm telling you, man, you talk about an alpha male. <laughs> I mean, she is – Powerful person. Very intimidating. She runs a very tight ship, and I was getting about a 50% in that class right up until the final because the tests were so hard and the material was so hard. And, and some, wow. some of it I just didn't care about, so part of it was my apathy. But uh, it, a lot of my peers were dropping it. But the thing was is that next semester or the next year, she wasn't going to be teaching it. And I, wa- I, didn't, I only wanted to take it with her. And so I just buckled down and said, I, so the, the final was a pay, an essay, you know, and uh, she said from the lectern, she said, please email me about your papers. I will work with you. And uh, man, I took her at her word. So I, you know, just even forming a thesis, I'd send her ideas and she'd shoot back, right. you know, uh, <laughs> some pretty brutal rejections. And um, 
And then I'd finally land on a thesis that she approved, and then I'd I'd show her the first paragraph, you know. And I'll I'll be damned if she and I didn't write that paper almost paragraph by paragraph, and it's like thirty pages. Wow, she helped you to just kind of really work you through she it. She helped me, and she believed in what I was writing. She had, so her husband, I have her husband teaches there too, and he and I became friends, and I I took several classes with him. And you have to understand, I mean, I don't know how to put a. Um, just everybody in that divinity school fears her. <laughs> That's all, you know. Uh, so it's just, and you, nobody gets an A in her class. So I'm sitting in her husband's office and we're shooting the shit. And he says, uh, by the way, AJ likes your paper. And that means that they're talking about my paper around the kitchen table. At home. Yeah. <laughs> At home. And I mean, that, that, that it doesn't get any better than that. And so anyway, by the time I finished it with her help, she'd basically co-written it with me. It, it got an A minus, which lifted my grade up to above a C and, you know, I could pass and keep the credit. Wow. Have you had Amy on, have you had Amy Jill on your podcast? I mean, that seems like a no brainer right there. <laughs> oh, well, it's a no brainer as far as I've tried and I've wanted to, but I, oh, she, doesn't she hasn't me. responded yet and I'm not. I, I'm not giving up, uh, but I, I I really have to think of a good reason before I approach her because my show is all about people's deconversion stories. Um, right. Now your show, you have scholars on, and and I think you know I'd give it a shot, and you can drop my name to her. <laughs> well, that's what I yeah. I mean, what I try to do. Um, I'm gonna giving away my secrets here. It's not that much of a secret. When you know, no matter how famous the person, whenever they come out with a new book, the publisher requires them basically to promote it. Oh yeah. So they sure. have to do a certain number of, of shows and tour and all this stuff. So that's how I got Susan Jacoby. Like, I don't know Susan Jacoby, sure. but she had a new book out and I wrote to her and she's like, sure, I'll come on your show. Yeah. And well, that's how we got Frank Schaefer. Oh my Frank Schaefer. Yeah. Oh wow. Frankie, the younger Schaefer, obviously the older guy, older guy's dead, but yeah. that must've been, I got to go back and listen to that. That must've yeah, been interesting. Way back. And it was interesting, but uh, we, we've got William Paul Young coming on next month. Oh, is he the guy that wrote um, the, shack. the Shack? Yeah. Interesting. Oh, that will be – hold his feet to the fire, yeah? He doesn't have a book out, so I'm not sure why he agreed to do it other than just wants to talk. But uh, I mean, we've tweeted back and forth back in the day. Yeah. So so you want me to hold, He's hold his feet to the fire, huh? <laughs> well, I just want to know, like – I mean, it's, it's kind of one of these classic, you know, progressive – Gateway drug book. Yeah, well, yeah, and I think it's hard to know what he thinks too. You know, I, um, yeah, I'd just be interested to know where where he is I and I liked your show with um with our friend uh, there in Tennessee, and I'm his name is escaping. Oh, me. David Dark. Yeah, David Dark, and I haven't finished his book yet, and I definitely want to have him on my show too. But what a gentleman! He wants to come on your show. I talked to him about it. He he really is a great guy. I, I actually like that book. Um. You know, I got my issues with it, and when I had the show with him, I asked him about hell, and he kind of danced around it. <laughs> you know, wow. Because I think anybody who believes in hell, uh, that's a toxic um, doctrine that has to go. I don't think that you can be a good person and hold to that. <laughs> I mean, I hate it. I literally hate it. Well, and I think the Christian gospel for me, like, it's easy. Like, you know what I've noticed, and now we're really rambling all over the map, but it's all right. I, what I've noticed is that. A lot of times atheists will take aim at some of the most horrible verses in the Old Testament about, you know, if you if you rape uh, a woman, 
then you have to marry her, or oh, it's yeah. okay to rape, you know, slaves or, or whatever. You know, all these horrible verses. Low hanging fruit. Yeah, it's low hanging fruit, and a lot of evangelicals don't go for that just because they already have a dualistic view of the Bible anyway. They kind of don't take that Old Testament stuff all that seriously. For for Seventh Day Adventists, mm-hmm. which I was one. Uh, it's harder because uh, we did want to say that the Old Testament was just as inspired and valid as the as the New Testament and so forth. And nobody will go around claiming that the Old Testament isn't inspired, but they kind of soft pedal some of those things. But what I found in my deconversion process was just how I, I felt like even the message of the gospel itself that and of the sort of Lutheran, the high Lutheran view of grace and the gospel all of a sudden seemed so mm-hmm. corrupt to me and and it dawned and i knew this like i knew that that hitler could be in heaven and i could be in hell or hitler could be in heaven and the best person that ever lived could go to hell depending on their claim uh, whether they accepted jesus as their savior but suddenly that totally apart from anything the person did or would do uh that that your worth to god was based off of a, an intellectual assent to something that you couldn't have any evidence for. It just seemed to me so arbitrary and so, like, why would you want to be in heaven with someone like Hitler while someone like Martin Luther King Jr., like, I mean, he was a Christian too, so that's a bad example, but uh, someone like him would be in hell. Like, I just doesn't, Yeah. it just all of a sudden, I, I, I don't, why did it never seem evil to me? Yeah, I, 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 that's a big mystery, and that's part of the shame and the confusion. Is like, how did that? And I think you know, I think it has a lot to do with the myelin sheath. You know what that is? Yeah, I think it's the the brain is still developing well into your twenties, and so all of this got. And I think what Neil calls uh, like religious narratives and and religious doctrine are like mental nepotism where they kind of they kind of get a buy like they, they yeah they're not qualified to run for office but their brother's the mayor and so they get just somehow overlooking the flaws of something uh because it gets a right. pass and somehow yeah we gave it a pass and it's weird now especially uh I do remember that in the latter years of my preaching I said from the pulpit I said God better erase my memory in heaven because if any one of my four children or any of you for that matter are not there, and I know it, and I know that while I'm celebrating at the Feast of Tabernacles, you're burning in hell, fuck all of that, I'm out, I don't want to be there, Right. and I will not have fun, I will not put a a chicken leg in my mouth and dance (laughs) while I know one person, and it could be a stranger for that matter, if there's one person burning on fire and never put out, or whatever, separation from God, whatever, darkness, whatever, how are we supposed to be having fun if my daughter's in hell? Right. I mean, I just I went through all that gymnastics at the end till finally you just punt. I mean, I think a lot of this theology develops um along the way too for like so I started after I said what I just said, I started thinking, well, you know, the idea of grace is beautiful and nobody's beyond redemption, everybody can change, no matter what you've done in the past, you could still be loved. And and then so that's fine and then you say, well, could our behavior add anything to it? And then you start getting into the atonement. And and, and now this formerly beautiful idea of grace, uh, of being just forgiven, right, no matter what you've done, uh, that you could be accepted mm-hmm. back into the family, so to speak, if you've run away like the prodigal son, um, now becomes 
divorced from your behavior in order to satisfy the claims of a doctrine that says it's not of works, it has nothing to do with your own behavior. Uh, and even within the pages of the Bible, you know, people are resting. You know, James said, you know, with, without work, without a demonstration in the way you live your life, uh, your faith is empty, right? So I, I think these things, you know, evolve over time and different versions of theology develop uh, to satisfy certain people's, you know, desire for it to be pure in one way or another. But I, I just, I got tired of the gymnastics of trying to sort that all out. Because the minute you settled on one version of this, it was the other version of that one that went with it that, or that couldn't go with it. You know, they were incompatible in some cases. And and then you're just left with a muddled mess. Yeah. And I'm tired of hearing you talk about it for the last three minutes. I mean, that's how tired of it I am. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I'm tired of. I, I got halfway through that, and yeah. I'm so done. And I guess maybe hearing us banter about this just reminds me of how long it's been since I gave a damn. I I love the freedom of moving into the naturalist world where it's you know all that we believe that's outside of supernaturalism that is just we're just amoeba that evolved to this state and we're here. And we have these moments, and, and we're going to love one another. We're going to create meaning in our life, and then we're going to become worm food. And uh, yeah. something about that has actually, you know, and I'll credit you and your your episodes. I say episodes because I think you guys have cross-casted with Bart Campolo. Uh, Tony Campolo was my hero when I was a Christian. Bart Campolo is my hero now because uh, I just had a talk with Neil and Neil is like, we don't have a better story than we'll see our loved ones again and we live forever in paradise. And I said, yes, we do. And I'm, I'm coming from Bart Campolo's uh, passion about the wonderful story that we have that's actually a better narrative. And I said that to Neil and he was like, nope, doesn't work for me. It's still not as good as eternal life and seeing your, seeing your loved ones forever, you know. Right. And I get on paper that it's not as good. But at least it's honest. Right. So anyway, I, I'm just saying my fatigue with that whole, like you said, the gymnastics. I'm, I'm too. My knees are shoddy. Uh, my back hurts. I'm not doing any flips. No more. <laughs> well, I was talking to one of uh, one of the folks that is part of our Life After God community, and <clears throat> they had had a friend lose a close family member, and he was asking some questions about grief and how do you talk to people who are. Okay claiming that God willed it or nothing happens without God's permission or will and everything. And he just said, you know, it's just so sort of to your point about the better story. I, I feel like he said it's, it's hard to comfort someone when on top of the pain of the loss, they're now feeling like the person deserved it somehow or that they have to explain how it fits into a bigger description of the world and the universe instead of just saying, you know, sometimes things happen and we can say, well, yeah, cancer uh, can uh, invade a person's body and it mutates and then a person dies. I mean, this is just some, unfortunately, this is what happens. And we're going to keep combating all the various versions of cancer until I believe we'll come up with some cures. But you don't have to explain as, as an atheist, you don't have to explain how this person's untimely death meets some demand of a cosmic story and fits in there according to God's will. Yep. It's there's a lot of self uh, deprecation that goes into that explanation. Yeah. You feel bad that your mom's gone and then you feel bad that God wanted her gone for some oh, reason. Yeah. Yeah. So let me differentiate two scenarios. One, talking to a group of people that aren't in the middle of a crisis of having lost somebody. 
one of the testimonies that this whole thing says about us, and I say us just as a, as a culture, is we have not educated ourselves very well. And that is, here's, here's, a, here's a news flash, all living things die. Right. And it's right. uh, and you're never going to see him again or whatever. It's like, how is that a shock? Why are we surprised by that? Because we live, as Ernest Becker wrote in his book, Denial of Death, mm. we live in a, a pattern of denying this very thing that is just right under our noses. Now, so all I'm saying is when I say let's present the atheist story, the naturalist story, I'm really talking about in the context of pedagogy. Like nobody's – we're not at a funeral. It's totally different because as soon as I heard you going down that path of like, well, I talked to a guy and he just recently lost a loved one, I immediately shrunk up and said, oh, my God, I didn't mean to sound like I'm just going to be cold as ice to somebody who just lost no. a loved one. There, you do have to be a whole lot more fragile with somebody who's in the midst of that. Absolutely. I, they may say, I know they're in a better place and I'm not going to correct them. <laughs> you know. Right. And for all, you know, for all we know, the better place might be dead not hurting anymore you know not suffering well, yeah that's a partial truth yeah that's a partial truth right so it could be like you could you could honestly affirm like yeah maybe they are in a better place because they were going through you know so much pain and turmoil um but yeah the, these things are, are i mean i've often talked about the promise of eternal life like like the store owner who marks things up you know 200 percent and then gives you 25 percent off you know and like it seems like a great deal <laughs> like in other words it seems like not having eternal life is a real bummer when you've been promised eternal life, right? Mm, yeah. But if you were never promised eternal life in the first place, it would seem perfectly normal to you mm -hmm. that you would die. Like, like you said, like everything else around us dies. You know, it's just the only reason it seems abnormal that we die and become food for worms is because we've been promised yep. that we won't. Yep. Right? Yep. And, and, and now we're working against this artificial standard that was created in our minds that somehow we deserve to live forever. You know, yeah. I remember when that finally hit me too, partway through my year without God, I was like, wow, why would I, it's so arrogant. Why would I think I get to live forever? Like nothing else gets to live forever. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't, I don't even know what forever means or how I can't, I can't, nobody can wrap their head around right. that. What does that even mean? It's just a fairy tale. Yeah. Well, brother, it's been great to talk to you. We're we're pressing into a, a long conversation here, and I, I all it tells me is that we should do this more. Yeah. Well, I love you. I can say that loud and clear to all your listeners and to you. I I love you, and I love you, man. And I love what you're doing. And uh, we're we're co-laborers and a wonderful thing. And that's the thing. And maybe I, you know, we talked offline a little bit about how it's discouraging sometimes about how we find the same politics in the atheist movement as we did in the church. But at the end of the day, I feel like that. I'm going to turn around and do what's in front of me to do, and that is I help people through my podcast by talking to people about their journey, and we comfort one another, and we encourage one another. We don't feel so lonely, and that's it. I yeah. Just, I, I guess I don't necessarily know how deep I want to be involved in the movement when I'm doing – Right under my nose and right in my studio here in my house, I'm doing a good work, and maybe that's the extent of my involvement in the movement. I don't know. <laughs> I remember the same thing when I was a pastor. There were people that were climbing the corporate ladder in the church. They wanted to be president of this region yeah. and president of that region and hold this office and that office. And I just couldn't figure out – like I was so busy doing – pastoral work that I loved, mm -hmm. the people that I love, they're in my neighborhood. We're fighting against poverty in our community. We're, we're trying to, you know, create more housing opportunities for the homeless where I'm giving, you know, sermons about, 
you know, helping people make sense of their lives and, and, and live good lives. And I didn't have time for all that politics. And yes, it was discouraging, but I only had to look at it once in a while. And then I could go back to my church and do my thing. And I feel the same way about the, the atheist movement, so to say, like, there's, like you say, there's the same politics there, same, you know, tribalism, wagon circling, you know, we used to say the church is the only institution that shoots their wounded. Um, nope. And I really disagree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I have come to really disagree with that. There, almost any movement that has a vested interest in its own purity shoots their wounded. Yeah. People ask me sometimes, what do you think about such and such a scandal or thing that's happening? And I just, I love the people, but I'm so loath to get involved in these internecine debates. It's, it's just rough. Yeah. Well, humans are humans, and I think as humanists, we we have to figure out how to how to embrace uh, our ugliness, and maybe not. I don't know. I'm the I'm the king of judging and criticizing, but I know that I. And this is that grace debate, right? We, we, grace and ju- and judgment and law. And so, as a humanist, when we see humans, because right. I I think what we're saying is that we thought it was uh, unique to the church, but it's actually. Every time, you know, that funny thing that Jesus said, wherever two or more gathered there, I am. Well, I believe now that wherever two or more gathered, uh, shit's going to happen. I mean, people are people. Are people. <laughs> Shit, something, something's going down. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I think we just have to do what lies closest at hand, um, you know, lift people up. And I think it also goes back to what I was saying about people being incurious, you know, that instead of circling the wagons, instead of defending ourselves, you know, turn that, if, if you're going to be critical, turn the critical eye on yourself and your own attitude and turn your generosity towards others. And I feel like what we do is just the opposite. We, yeah. we give our, the generous, we, we're generous with ourselves and assume <laughs> that we're in the right. And then we turn our critical eye on others. And if you do that, you'll always be right. Yep. <laughs> and you'll never learn anything. That's right. Well, thanks so much, man. I appreciate you having me on. I love talking to you. Yeah, it's great talking to you, too. All right. Keep up good work. Thanks, Cass. I appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. I think the podcast will go way better with your shirt off, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I still have an undershirt on. Oh, okay. Okay. Because Neil was threatened to take his shirt off the other day, and that was pretty funny. Well, Neil has the sh- the body to take his shirt off with. <laughs> I don't. I would I would clear the room. I take my shirt off. <laughs> Nipple hairs and my man boobs and <laughs> the whole nine yards. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, Cass is a, a great friend, and uh, it was just a privilege to to have that chat with him, and and almost like a like a personal conversation that that y'all get to listen in on. So. Uh, Good times. Definitely go check out Cass and Bob's podcast, Everyone's Agnostic. You can find it on iTunes and Stitcher and wherever else you get your podcasts. Subscribe, listen religiously, as we like to say, and uh, and support them. And uh, appreciate uh, so much, Cass, taking the time and for you taking the time to uh, spend this part of your day with us. It's uh, just an honor to know that so many of you are, are tuning in. And every time I hear from someone who's listened to the show, it just uh, reinforces um, for me why I'm doing this. And uh, it's fun for, for one thing. And uh, I, I have a great time doing it. But it's also wonderful to know that we're connecting uh, people around the world 
uh, around a similar experience that some of us are going through and that we can bring each other a little bit of encouragement. If you haven't yet been to our website, definitely go there and check that out. It's lifeaftergod.org. Um, there's some resources there that are going to be uh, also growing in number over the next few months. And if you want to support the work that we're doing, you can do that in a number of ways. You could follow our social media accounts on Twitter and Facebook in, in particular, and the links are there in the website uh, for that. Uh, and then once you are following us, um, you know, it'd be great to have you share, if you're able, uh, on your social media, the things that we're creating, like this podcast, for example, share it with a, a friend, um, post it on your timeline, and um, share it with others. It's, it's really the best and almost only way right now that we can get the word out about what we're doing. And if you're able to make a financial contribution to support the production of the show, we have a lot of plans for growth. Uh, we could really... Uh, go in any number of different directions in growing the podcast and uh, the kinds of stories and uh, productions that we want to to explore and bring to you. You can support us financially on a recurring monthly basis at my Patreon page at patreon.com slash life after God. It can be any amount and uh, it'll just come out of your uh, checking account uh, each month. It could be you know, the price of a latte, the price of a dinner out, um, the price of a subscription to a magazine, whatever, whatever you think is a manageable amount. My goal would be that if, if, if everyone that enjoys the podcast made a monthly contribution in an amount that they wouldn't even notice being missing from their account, because uh, the last thing I want to do is, is for anyone to be in any kind of, uh, any kind of hardship by you know, donating money to things that they care about. Um, but a little bit goes a long way. And if we all work together, we can make this even more awesome than it already is. Special thanks to those of you that are Patreon supporters. I know some of you have upped your pledges this month. Super uh, appreciative of Jeff, as always, for, for coming through. And, and uh, thanks for increasing your pledge, Jeff. Thank you to others for, um, for becoming new Patreon supporters. Um, thank you to the nearly 3,000 new Facebook followers that we've received over the last uh, several days. Uh, Brian posted a very viral meme the other day that's had over 200,000 impressions, and we've we've almost doubled our page followers as a result of that. Uh, also, thanks to uh, some of you for sharing that, and that's how the word gets out. Uh, just appreciate everyone who writes in. I have so much email to respond to, and if you haven't heard from me in a timely way, uh, it's only because uh, between this and my other job and my family and the volume of email that I've gotten recently, it's just been hard to keep up. So again, thanks for everything. Um, you are my inspiration, and I hope that you will keep listening. Until next time, I'm your host, Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry 
Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.